0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from Hebrew College's Shulman Graduate School of Jewish Education. In their master's degree program, learn to engage diverse Jewish communities and develop expertise to address pressing contemporary issues. The program can be completed online from anywhere in the world or on campus just outside of Boston. Generous scholarships are available. Learn more and prepare for Passover by downloading the article The Four Neurodivergent Children by Rachel Figuera Smith at www.hebrewcollege.edu/slash unbound. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 164: going Jewishly. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rothberg.
0: And before we get into today's show, we want to make an announcement that we've been teasing for a while, but the time has finally come. We want to announce that we have officially reached the 1 million download mark. So if you downloaded Judaism Unbound last week, you may have been our 1 millionth download and we thank you for it.
1: 1 million downloads! Start your slow claps, start your engines, start your celebrations, tell your friends, tell your foes, tell everyone, million downloads, it's happened.
0: Now, I want to tell you a little bit about what we've got planned up ahead. We're going to announce more next week. But just to tease that a little bit, you should know that we are planning a party and you're invited. It's going to be a party online. We're going to tell you the final date next week. We're expecting to have a lot of our past guests and a lot of our listeners all being on Zoom at the same time in some fashion and doing something together, which we will figure out. But it'll be fun. And it's going to take place sometime during Passover. We'll let you know for sure next week.
1: Yes, we are figuring out as we speak, as Dan said, in the spirit, the eternal spirit of Judaism Unbound, where we figure out as we go. But it's going to be awesome. We're encouraging party hats, wearing uh, cake bringing. Unfortunately, we can't share it through our various screens, but like BYO cake for sure. Um, We're going to have fun. And yeah, like Dan said, we're going to have some guests from the past that are going to join us. You who are joining as listeners. And we'll be there, too. And some of it will be sort of sketched out and planned, but a lot of it will just be hanging out and a chance for us to be in touch as hosts, as listeners, as guests, as all of the above, depending on the day.
0: So more on that next week. And now let's turn to today's show. Our guest today is Leon Wiener Dow. He is the author of the 2018 Jewish Book Award winning book called The Going, A Meditation on Jewish Law. We're going to get into the meaning of that whole title a lot during today's episode, but suffice it to say that it's an interesting exploration of the concept that in Hebrew is called halacha, and in English is often translated as Jewish law, but we're going to discuss whether or not that's the best translation. The other way to translate it is to say the going or the path, and that's really the question that this book gets into. Leon Wiener-Dow is a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Israel and also teaches at the secular yeshiva in Tel Aviv called Bina. Leon Wiener-Dow has rabbinical ordination from Rabbi Professor David Hartman and also a PhD in philosophy from Bar-Ilan University. We've been thinking for a long time and we're going to think a little bit more in the weeks ahead about What is a Jewish way? What is the way that all of the ideas that we've talked about over the course of the show can kind of fold in, or should they, into some kind of path, some kind of particular Jewish way or Jewish going of doing things? And we're excited to launch that exploration with today's interview. So, Leon Wiener-Dow, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to
2: have you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, let's jump right into your book. I want to actually start with the title, because in a way, the title gets to this question of what are we even talking about when we talk about halakha. And what's interesting to me is that initially when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, the title of your book is The Going. And so in a way, you're translating it differently from the typical translation of Jewish law and then I noticed the subtitle and it says a meditation on Jewish law. So I was wondering uh, a, if that was something that the publisher uh, inserted, but more significantly, I was wondering if you could just sort of help position us and our listeners about the whole concept that you're exploring here of halacha and what that really is in, in both your sort of received understanding and the, the basic understanding that you're trying to put out there by translating it instead of law as the going.
2: Right. So thank you for that question. I, I thank you for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Number one is because the publisher actually was not happy with that title, the going number two, cause you're right that there was, there was a lot at stake in that title. And so I actually found myself in one of those rare moments where at least rare for me when I was on my hind legs and said to the publisher, no, I won't change the title. And the not changing the title was about precisely what you sense the going. A meditation on Jewish law, I didn't really care so much about. I I was aware of the fact that uh, if I just have a book entitled The Going, then no one's going to know what it's about. The Going reveals a lot about uh, my understanding of Jewish law uh, as directed, as a path, but not the path, um, as something that's open-ended. It's a gerund. It's a noun that's that has within it uh, movement and a verb. So uh, as opposed to a thing, um, and I and I think, in all honesty, I don't think I'm making that up. I think I think that that's in the Hebrew term halacha. Uh, the Hebrew term halacha has in it the walking. It's not hadirich, right? It's not the way, which is often, um, let's say, in 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 Orthodox circles or. Certain Orthodox circles, when someone leaves that community, they call it that the the person in English they say is off the derech, is off the way, and that and that's a phrase that's only possible if you think that there is a way. But if you think that live Judaism is a process, uh, then then you won't have a noun like the way. You will have what I think halacha is, which is going. And I think, classically speaking, what uh, seriously engaged learners of Torah, of Jewish texts do, is, is take an existent term and kind of turn them into a kind of putty or play-doh, uh, which never totally loses its form, but which is different than it was when we first started working with it. So what I mean to say is we need to have that reference of law. We need to know what we're talking about, not just so that someone on Amazon knows what the book is about. Um, but because there's this thing that we think of called Jewish law, uh, and what I'm suggesting is is that we often think of it wrong. I tell the story in the book of, of my rabbi, uh, David Hartman, who, who met a congregant of his in a supermarket when he was a congregational rabbi in Montreal. And, and, and the congregant said to him, you know, Rabbi, um, I, I like your sermons and everything, but I don't come to, to synagogue anymore because I don't believe in God. And Rabbi Hartman said to him, well, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. That conversation is possible only because they have this term called God, which then we have to deconstruct and, and, and distance ourselves from, but it's still an important avenue for us to discuss the spiritual life. And I would say similarly, Jewish law, as a term, which is a limited term, is necessary for us to have the reference so that we can start to talk about what it is to live a a committed Jewish life, even if we're going to then afterwards kind of go against the grain and try to reconceptualize it and offer differing understandings. Uh, We usually think of law as something static. We usually think of law as something black and white. We usually think of law as something determinate. What if? Which I think is the case, Jewish law is something profoundly indeterminate. What if Jewish law is something that is constantly changing and open to the nuances of a of a given situation such that it's very, very hard to uh, have black and white clarity.
1: So, can you tell us a little bit about your your journey around whether it's Jewish law or halakha or Torah or the halakha or the Torah? Um, what was your point A growing up or set of point A's growing up and what are the points B, C and D that have led you to where you are now?
2: I grew up in a nominally conservative Jewish home in Houston, Texas. And when I say nominally conservative, what I mean by that is what most, what most Jews who call themselves conservative mean by that, which is um, they belong to the conservative synagogue. Um, not that they actually agree with the tenets of conservative Judaism as the movement uh, articulates them, and not that they are uh, observant in the way that the conservative movement expects its adherents to be. And my parents sent me to a Jewish day school. And what I would say is that um, I think back, if I think back to maybe uh, the earliest pivotal moment in this journey. Um, so I would probably go back to, I think it was third grade, it might have been fourth grade, um, when we learned about um, separating dairy and meat in school. And they quoted the verse about not seething the kids in its mother's milk. Uh, And they offered this compelling ethical vision of why it is that we don't eat meat and milk products together. Uh, and I thought it was beautiful, and then I got home and realized, but we don't do that. We eat milk and meat together at my house, and I felt then that if we are committed to an idea, if we think that the Torah is teaching us something deep and profound and sensitive and true, we need to be living according to what the Torah is saying. It's okay not to think that the Torah is teaching beautiful things or to look at the Torah as many ugly things and say, oh, you know, the Torah is horrible. I, 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 th- that's a separate conversation. But for those who think that there is something profoundly compelling or beautiful in the Torah and are satisfied to stay in this moment of adoration, uh, but not actually live that out, that for me is profoundly jarring. That, that was the way I felt as a third or fourth grader wherever, whenever it was, and I told my parents that I wanted to start separating milk and meat. Uh, and so my parents, um, may they live long, blessed lives, did a better job of parenting then than I think I probably ever would be able to do and said, okay, fine, uh, so we'll have, you'll have a, a meat plate and a milk plate, and, and the rest of the kitchen was totally not kosher. But that was, for me, the first act of Uh, assertion and the first act of demanding that the Torah that I live and the Torah that I study be intimately bound to each other. And um, that was, I would say, also perhaps the first point at which I said that this journey is mine. That is to say, what I got from my parents' home uh, is not tantamount to the life that is mine, to the Jewish life that is mine,
0: well, I just want to mention briefly that your story reminds me of a famous story about my father-in-law who had a very similar experience. I think in third or fourth grade, and he came home saying that he also wanted to uh, not eat milk and meat together. And his mother told him, "Well, you know that means that you can't have ice cream after dinner anymore." And he said, oh, "Forget it."
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, that's um, that's a very serious point, which is to say, um, number one, I-, I think that already back then. I was aware of the open, open-endedness of it. That is to say, I can take something very seriously uh, and there might be some period of time in my life in which I will believe in uh, certain tenets or adhere to a certain understanding of law uh, and, and, it will, and it will change. Um, now, hopefully it won't change just after I've had a delicious meat meal, or just just you know, just before they put the ice cream in front of me. Um, but uh, but it, but it but it but it's open ended in in a serious way. The the other way um, in which it's in which it's a serious story, even though it's 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 obviously a funny story. Is that um, I think that there is a way in which uh, the the rigor of a uh, halachically lived life has a lot to do with making. Uh, what we would call aware choices, um, and not choices which are a function of comfort. That is to say, we I orient myself, I orient my life, I orient my choices around something, not in order to make my life more difficult, but certainly I won't choose something only because it's easier. You might limit yourself in terms of your own pleasures, your immediate pleasures, uh, because you think that there's something deeper at stake.
1: Closes with the word steak. There's something poetic about that. <laughs> Thank you, Lex.
2: I appreciate
1: it. Yeah. Um, while we're sharing stories, I've got one myself around meat and dairy um, that I think that I think and hope will add to this. Um, I um, It wasn't as early as third or fourth grade. I had no consciousness of meat and dairy questions in third or fourth grade. Um, but in high school, I started to hear about these questions of meat and dairy. And I think I did first hear about the Torah verse, either late in high school or early in college. And my reaction, so, and, and, I've, and I'm familiar with some of the understandings about how this is a way of showing compassion for an animal, who, like for a mother and its relationship with a child, and et cetera, et cetera. And my reaction was very different. Um, my reaction was, okay, I see this, there is power in this, um, and, and it speaks deep to me. Um, why on earth are we separating milk from a cow from animals that are not cows like why on earth would that be a logical conclusion and so what i'm get and so for me i if i ever were faced with the situation where i did in fact have in front of me milk from an animal and meat of the same animal that we're, there's reason to even think possibly they're in the same family, Um, I would would consider that situation different. But what I'm getting at is you didn't only buy into that verse when you decided to separate meat and dairy. You actually, and I'm not saying this as a value judgment, I'm just saying descriptively, you didn't only say, oh, I see power in the way this verse was taught to me, and I'm going to apply it to my life. You took on for yourself a whole set of other interpretive ideas that have been built on that verse for centuries and centuries and centuries that different people could argue either are or aren't direct follow-ups, direct results of that interpretation. So this I'll turn it into a question now. Um, But what I'm getting at here is um, there's sort of a question for me of the halakha. Um, You use the phrase the halakha in your book a decent amount, but you also use occasionally halakha without the word the. Um, Dan asked about the word going. I'm now on the word the, the other word of your title. Um, and I think that that distinction is important because one suggests that there is a halakha, a system that, you know, if you think this certain thing about the text in the Bible about meat and dairy, that like you're sort of buying into a whole set of interpretations around that that have come for many, many centuries. But there's also some people who, who espouse the idea that halakha could be more about a personalized individualized way of relating to things that would still be built on deeply following the impulse that x or y is true like you talked about not ignoring that and having the ice cream after dinner but but what what could we make of this what what could we make of this distinction between the halakha and halakha
2: great so that's that's a very very interesting question what um, if i go back to the example that you gave um, which I think is a great example. Why, why would I not uh, drink milk with my chicken? The milk is from the, from the cow and the chicken is chicken. Um, and, and the biblical verse is about not seething a kid in its mother's milk. Um, there's a halachic discussion about why we do that. And the uh, takeaway of it is that Rashi misunderstood something. The great Rashi, the great 11th century commentator in France. Uh, and therefore, out of deference to Rashi, we continue to separate milk and meat across the board. Now, that's crazy at some level, right? Um, because it makes no sense. It, if we're, if we, it makes no sense if what we think is at stake in observing that biblical verse or our understanding of how to act out that biblical verse is some kind of, quote-unquote, correct understanding of a biblical verse, That's not what's at stake. What's at stake is more than that. That is to say, we are trying to um, hold different things in our hand at the same time. On the one hand, we're trying to hold uh, that verse itself and whatever impulse, ethical, or divine is nested into that verse. And at the same time, we are placing ourselves within the context of an evolving legal and interpretive system. And so, yes, I will now do something which makes no sense regarding the verse itself out of deference to Rashi, out of deference to an 11th century French rabbi, which you could say makes no sense unless you understand the halakha, which is how I understand it, to be a deeply communal endeavor that is to say i place myself not as a sole uh, not as a solitary interpreter of certain biblical or other rabbinic injunctions but i place myself within a very very complex weave of communal and rabbinic voices that doesn't mean that i'm going to be bound in some kind of static way to to an earlier interpretation of a verse, which I think is either outdated or morally problematic. But it does mean that I'm going to be attentive to it and aware that the way that I respond is going to have to take into account my beholdenness to both the verse and to the way that it's been understood by a variety of figures and the way that it's lived out within a communal life. If my best waking hours or my best prayer hours are at eleven a m but synagogue is called for nine a m so i 'm stuck that is to say i am i am if I think that prayer is a, or some aspect of prayer is a communal endeavor, then i'm going to have to work that out because the community bounds me, it binds me, and it bounds me, and those go together and so in that sense, to get back to your question uh, which is which is spot on that the choice of the word the halakha, or the going, is not uh, a haphazard choice. That is to say, I I think that within the halakha, there are lots of voices. I think that within the halakha, there are delicious tensions. There are uh, acts of pulling in different directions. There are uh, opportunities for holy disobedience. But that still takes place within something that I would call the halakha, because it is something which has a communal reference, and um, and a halacha would only that would be the privatization of halacha. And if there's one thing that I think that uh, halachic life insists upon, it's that uh, the religious life cannot be fully privatized.
0: There's so much in what you're talking about that I want to return to, uh, particularly that, it, of course, it's uh, leading us to a meditation on our own name of Judaism Unbound, but uh,
2: <laughs> we, might, we
0: might want to save that for a part two. Um, I, I want to really focus on this, the question of the, the communal nature of it uh, on, on two levels, one of which I think is sort of less central, but would be interested in your reflecting on it a little, which is just the the idea that when you you introduced your initial draw to to halakha you know when you uh, learned about not mixing milk and meat and then you know you talked about how the how how if you think that the torah is uh, uh, taking a beautiful perspective then you should live it out but what's interesting is that in neither of those stories is is sort of really where the halakha comes from you know it comes from the rabbis of the early uh you know post Millennium years, you know, the first second century and then and then the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh you know but but this sort of period of time uh, which was kind of a a reimagination of Judaism that was inspired by tied to et cetera the Torah, but in many cases departs from it quite significantly, so in some ways, the question is. Is it really true to say that what is being lived out by communities that live the halacha, that live in a sort of more uh, formalized Jewish manner, that they're actually living out the, the the principles of the Torah, or is it is it something else is going on that something else perhaps also quite wonderful and and important, but but it's different from that and. Um, and and the reason why I think it's the, the sort of more significant question that I, I think is sort of um part of this is if we accept the premise that a religious life is communal in nature, that the halakha is communal in nature, what happens when you think that the community is problematic? And um and I guess there's you know multiple ways. You you tell a beautiful story about David Hartman, your rabbi David Hartman, who uh, was an Orthodox rabbi, and he grew up in an Orthodox community, and and he was very frustrated with people who would continue to do things or to um, allow, in particular, uh, unequal status for women, and. Um, You know, he was like, just you got to just start doing what you think is right. And he didn't have a lot of patience for people saying, yeah, but this is the law doesn't allow this. I have to wait around for some rabbi or some panel of rabbis to tell me it's okay." He said the way I read what you wrote was that he was basically saying, you know, the the way that the law changes is essentially through civil disobedience. But that's a harder thing for a newcomer to kind of get behind in part because a newcomer is kind of like an immigrant. And this is the other piece that I I think is, is part of this, is that most Jews today are functionally immigrants to the halakha if they're going to have any relationship with it whatsoever. And when I think of immigrating, which I sometimes do these days, honestly, and I would think, like, where would I want to immigrate to? My concern is that in many ways, halakhic Judaism is so far away from what most Jews kind of would imagine the life that they want to lead to be about, that they may very well be attracted to a communal life, even a religious life, certainly a spiritual life, but wouldn't say, but I want to immigrate to this particular one because it's too problematic, it's too layered with all these issues. I don't want to go somewhere where... The very my very going there means I'm immigrating as a social change agent. For some people, that's really attractive. And by the way, I know some people have moved to Israel for precisely that reason, but that's the minority. and And so I'm curious how you think about all of that in the world that we actually live in today. And what is it that you imagine or hope might come of it?
2: Can we craft a Judaism which is compelling, which is attentive to our sensibilities, our religious and spiritual sensibilities, our moral sensibilities, and do it in a way that we ourselves are convinced and the people listening to us are convinced that it's emergent from the Torah, that we are every bit as faithful to the Torah that we received as we are to the understandings and sensitivities that come through our interpretation? So that's what I would say regarding the first point. Um, the jury is out, and, and the jury's out for for us today, living our lives Jewishly. Uh, and so and so, what I would say, and this gets to my second point, which is, what do I do uh, um, if if I don't, if I'm not happy with the existing community? Um, so I would quote uh, Michael Walzer, uh, the political philosopher Michael Walzer, uh, who in a in a delicious. Uh, book called Interpretation and Social Criticism. Uh, And it's delicious because he writes so beautifully and it's delicious because it's very thin as well. uh, And it's very deep. So he says, when our country behaves badly, it's still ours to criticize and perhaps especially so. I operate under the assumption, whether it's talking about Trump's America or Netanyahu's Israel or the halakha, that if I'm not happy with one of that, uh, with one of the communities which I'm a part of, um, I can pretend that I'm not a part of it. I could pretend like it's not mine. I could pretend I can try to sever contact with it. Um, but I think that that's shirking responsibility. I think that what it is to be a responsible member of a community is to say, uh, yes, that's the community that I'm a part of. That's the community that I was born into. Uh, and uh, it's especially mine to criticize if I disagree with it. Now, that brings us to the third point of what what was in your question, which is, well, if I'm coming from the outside, why would I come in? Why would I join? Why? Um, and here, what I would say is, the rabbis of the Talmud were deeply aware, and I quote this story from um, the tractate of Brachot in the Babylonian Talmud, where. Um, Uh, where three rabbis follow their own teachers into the bathroom and into the bedroom. And they want to see how their teachers are living their lives in the most intimate of spaces. And when the teacher discovers that their student has followed them into those intimate spaces, they say, what are you doing here? And the, and the student responds without blinking an eye, that's Torah and I want to learn. Um, And so what I would say is nestled in that story is the idea that, the true meaning of Torah, and I, would, and I would say the true meaning of a halachic life, is the way that it's being lived out. And if the way that my halachic life is being lived out is not enticing to someone, then that's my failure. It is the job of people who are living committed halachic lives to live in a way that someone looking on it from the outside says, Wow that is a compelling way of life. The way that that person is living their lives is a plausible and compelling religious life. Part of my hope in writing The Going was that it will allow someone who's outside of the halachic community to come in and say, oh, there's actually something interesting going on there. There are shades of gray.
1: So I'm coming at this and I am going to name that I would call myself most accurately a-halachic, maybe non-halachic, and on my most provocative days, anti-halachic. When I speak with folks who are on the progressive end of orthodoxy or identify as egalitarian and halachic or various various movements like that, I, I hear a lot that that they're sort of facing battles in the halakhic world with people that are more conservative, more strict than them a lot. And so they spend a lot of time defending their positions to folks who are more conservative in a halachic sense. Um, and so I try to be the voice that forces them to look over the other shoulder, because I believe that change most effectively happens when people aren't only looking over their rightward shoulder, but over their leftward shoulder, for lack of a better term as well. So I I do occasionally like really put myself out there as anti-halachic. But it's also genuinely, I haven't come to that lightly. Um, at various points in my life, to, to go back to the meat and dairy thing, I've actually been someone who separates meat and dairy. I've been someone who thinks of myself as having some form of halachic observance. That is is—that is no longer where I am. And I say that having engaged deeply with some traditional ideas of what a halachic system is that we might sort of look at as, and, and strawman as the only way it could be, you know, the most fundamentalist looking communities. Um, but I've also been, I've also spent time learning about and engaged with more progressive forms of orthodox halakha, forms of halakha that would call themselves conservative Judaism to steal from the founder of my religious movement, integral halakha. Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi poses a system that is perhaps the, the least- it gives um, received tradition less of a veto than perhaps any other halakhic system that I'm familiar with. And I've engaged with all of these and all of them feel like they're not enough for me. Um, and I say not enough intentionally because people think that discarding halakha is a discarding. They think it is it is a not doing of the Jewish as opposed to an active doing of some other Jewish. And for me, those things are not enough because they cede to the past a percentage of sort of carrying our tradition that I'm not willing to do. Um, and it's not that they all see what I don't want to strawman. in. It. It's not that like halakha gives 100% of the voice to the past. It's not that everybody just receives what they're told and automatically does it. But the line that is drawn and and the percentage, the weight that is given to receive tradition is just more than I'm comfortable with. And I even would apply that, by the way, there are, there are folks more and more even in the reform world that think of what they're doing as as a form of halakha, although very, very different in many ways. I even would tar- target this to them, because ultimately, for me, um, I'm thinking about the Spike Lee movie title, Do the Right Thing. Like ultimately, a system that doesn't boil down to do the right thing, without almost any caveats, is is very hard for me. and And I do find that it's different depending on the movement, but there's different areas, whether it's gender in some orthodox spaces, whether it's sexuality in some different orthodox spaces, whether it's, uh, I mean, all sorts of issues, intermarriage, et cetera, et cetera. Like, there's these issues where the goalposts are different depending on which context we're in, but people are answering the question, what do we do about X issue? Not with, I think this is the right thing to do, but with, this is, this is ultimately what I've received. It's, it doesn't work for me. At a certain point, I felt sad about that and I wanted there to be an alternate halakha. But at this point, I don't think I do. And so I guess I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear from you to someone like me and to others like me, why should, like if, if our framework is ultimately do the right thing, does halakha lend itself to that? Am I wrong? How should I, how should I more effectively think about this?
2: I think you're thinking about it perfectly. Let me give what I think is the internal answer that the halakha gives. And let me give what I think is a, is a, is a helpful, um, externally viewed uh, answer. The internal answer, I think, that the halacha gives is a verse from Psalms, which is then quoted by the Talmud in the tractate of Brachot. In the Hebrew, it's a time to act for God. You must violate the Torah. What that means is that there are times when Out of loyalty to the system, you have to disregard existent practice. That, I would argue, is a principle within the halachic system. Now, it's obviously, for reasons that doesn't take a long time to understand, a very dangerous principle to espouse. Because every time that I think something is wrong, I'm likely to say, oh, I now need to disregard the halachic system. Uh, I now need to act out of loyalty for God. And some of Judaism's greatest crises had been born of people who hear God's call. Uh, And so the halachic system as a system tends to be very conservative with a small C in order to resist those kinds of dangerous uh, voices. But um, I, I promised an internal and also an external. What I would say externally speaking is precisely because of what we talked about before, which is that the halakha is fundamentally a communal endeavor. Precisely because of that, what the system does has to take into account what Lex is doing. If you run off and disregard the system because it's oppressive, or because it's it's misguided morally, so we can say, we, and I'm talking about Stereotypically, about those of us who stay within the confines of the system, we can say, Oh, Lex, Lex is not living his life halachically. But ultimately, and the rabbis were aware of this, all of Jewish living ultimately affects the halacha. If most Jews are not keeping the halacha, then we have to reconceptualize how we understand what halacha is. Rabbi David Sveed Hoffman, German rabbi, Uh, of the 19th century says when he's, when he's asked whether he should dismiss the testimony of Jews who do not keep the Sabbath, because, because in classic rabbinic literature, that defined what testimony was accepted in a Jewish court of law. And the reason for that is because that was what was considered or definitive of an upstanding member of the Jewish community. And Rabbi David Sieved Hoffman says that's no longer what defines Someone who's a part of the Jewish community, and so therefore, the halacha needs to recast and reconceptualize what the requirements are for valid testimony. What that means is that he was attentive to the fact something that comes up very clearly in early rabbinic literature, which is that the rabbis can't enact halachic law which most of the Jewish people don't keep. Those people who are consciously making a choice to live outside of the confines of the halakha are doing what they need to be doing, which is saying no to the system and pulling the system in a different way. Don't change a single thing that you're doing. The halakha, and as a system, the halakha, as it's articulated by its proponents and its, and its mouthpieces, have to take into account the committed Jewish life that you're living. And I would want to say not not being paternalistic, um, but but actually by forcing me as someone who's committed halachically to be attentive to to what you're articulating, I would want to say no. You're living halachic life, but you're pulling in a different direction.
0: I'm just thinking a lot about uh, maybe this connects to what you're talking about. You know, I've been thinking a lot about Marie Kondo and the whole idea of tidying up. And what's interesting to me about Marie Kondo's system is that it actually is a halacha. It is a system. She has a very particular way that you need to go through your house in order to tidy it properly. But then the what you're doing is very individual. You know, you're, it's about what sparks joy for you. So so in a way, it seems like it's anti halachic but it's actually very halakhic. Um I'm really struggling with, you know, I guess it's going back to my question about immigration is that. You know, there's a way in which we as Jews are born into this. Although many of us who are Jews today, were not born into it. Uh, whether we weren't born as Jews or we weren't born as uh, halachic Jews, and so it 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 has to be a choice. And so it doesn't even feel like it's specifically unattractive. Like it's like, oh, this is terrible. I wouldn't. Why would I want to do this? Although there are elements of that. It's more that it's it's that some of the values that are so absolutely fundamental to me, and I think to the community in which I live, of, of Jewish people and also not Jewish people, but the, the, the deepest values seem to be values that the halakha, as currently constituted, is, is not aware of, is not, is not focused on. And that's, that's the issue to me, and it feels like, yeah, could that be changed, perhaps, Where my struggle is, is that I think it could be probably better and more easily rebuilt from outside the system than changed from within. And and I guess that that's where I think Lex and I are in a little bit of a different place, because I think that Lex is saying, you know, I'm not I'm not really into this idea of a halacha, and I'm saying I'm really into it. I just think it needs to be rebuilt from the outside.
2: I can only commend the struggle. Um, I, can, I, I can't only commend it, I actually identify with the struggle, uh, despite the different places that you and I find ourselves in relation to the halachic world. What I would say is, I previously in our conversation referred to what I think is a fundamental principle of the halacha that religiosity or a religiously committed life is fundamentally communal uh, in nature. So I'll add now. A second core halachic principle, which is that every single detail of your life matters. Now, that means that everything that we put in our body matters. And that means that every word that we utter out of our mouth matters. The halacha now the halacha, you are right to be disgruntled with the halachic system in the sense that there are certain areas of life which the halacha has done a good job of, of paying lots of attention to. The halacha does a good job of paying lots of attention to the minutia of prayer life. The halacha does a good job of paying attention to the way that we speak about other people. But the halacha has not done a good job of paying attention to human beings' impact on the environment. I think that it's, it's clear, I, not only do I think, it's clear to me that the way that I live my life in terms of using and consuming goods, whether they are animals or whether they are paper goods, whether it's water, the halakha has to have something to say about that. And what I would say is, is that the halakha's overarching statement is beautiful and encouraging, which is that every single aspect of my life, every single action, every single discrete act of my life is of significance, is of religious moment. But you're right to feel that the existent regnant halachic community doesn't pay too much attention to that. And I can only share your pain. When I see in Israel especially that, that the quote-unquote halachic community are the deepest offend, the, the worst offenders of consumption of plastic. If you look at the way that people kasha their homes and prepare before Passover, it's insane. And if what it means to live to leave Egypt and live a life of being uh, a servant of God is to use this much plastic and foil, then something has lost its meaning. Now Getting back to your question, what do I do if from the outside, it seems easier to rebuild uh, than, than to rework? Um, and what I would say is, I would quote my father, people love to build new buildings. And people love to do that because it's shiny uh, and because it seems easier. But if you've ever built a new building, uh, it's very costly and it's not as glamorous as it is to renovate an old building, um, but you can save a lot of money and you can have an absolutely outstanding and beautiful edifice by renovating a building. And so I can't con- I'm not trying to convince you uh, to, to work from within. What I can just say is that there is a lot of core beauty in a halakhically lived life uh, and you can only access it from inside. Uh, and I think that there's a tremendous amount lost by, by starting the building from scratch.
1: I want to start this by saying some things that you said that really resonate with me. I, I jumped to anti-halachic before I want. I don't want to sound like there's nothing Like – I'm really, really deeply on board with what you said about every detail of your life matters. I love the teachings that – I mean, you, you quoted one earlier, but there's multiple times in the Talmud where it's like – this too is Torah. This too is Torah. There's Hasidic teachings about how you tie your shoes, and how 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 a student of his Rebbe was like obsessed with how his Rebbe tied his shoes, because how you tie your shoes must of necessity be tied to important important value concepts, important et cetera. Like every little action matters, and it flashes me to a critique historically of Judaism. Um, by Christians largely but by by many people and it's now and it's certainly in the past and it's even in the in the New Testament but there's there's the famous idea um since we've been talking about kashrut eating um, there's the famous idea that you know we shouldn't focus on what goes into our mouths we should focus on what comes out of our mouths it's a, it's quoted in the, that's a that's from elements of the New Testament and it's something that people continue to say today and I like cringe I cringe at that idea because a it It implies that there's a separateness to what comes out of our mouth and what goes into our mouth. It implies that, you know, there are these deeply separate categories of our lives that don't blur. And as a Jew, and even as one who has not connected to the halakhic system, I do connect to the bottom of my soul um, to the idea that every single action matters. And more than that, when before I eat anything, before I put anything into my mouth, things come out of my mouth. I say a blessing. Um, So the very idea that those, like, it's just so alien to me that those would be separate. And to me, even though I'm not a halakhic Jew, like saying a blessing before I eat something is a testament to values that I care about. And the idea that food is not something that I magically created, that I have independent of the world around me, independent of everybody else. So I wanted to name a resonance. And then I also wanted to ask an open-ended question, which is we haven't in this episode talked a whole lot about God. We've talked a lot about halakha. Which, um, which I know from your book you see as deeply, deeply connected to God. But what's interesting is I have spoken occasionally with Jews who identify as halachic Jews, who, who, who keep forms of halacha for whom God is not really that, that important a factor. But I, but the the sense I get is that that's not the case for you. And so I'd love to hear, like, who's doing the commanding? Who is, like, like, when we relate to halacha, what is God's role in that? And, What does it look like for you and and for others?
2: Now there's something very comforting and there's something very jarring about the ability to have a long, drawn-out conversation about halakha and never mention God. You can read page upon page upon page of Talmud and there is no mention of God. All of the discussion, and not only is there no mention of God, in the narratives where God is mentioned, it's, it's is in the famous story of the oven of Ahnai. It's in order to say God has no say in what happens in, in the Beit Nidrash, in the house of, of rabbinic discourse. There's something that non-God-oriented Jews love about that. Um, there's something enthralling, oh, fantastic, how wonderful the Talmud is, that it opens up the possibility of being an engaged Jew and not believing in God, or not wanting to bring God into the discourse. And that's true, um, but that's only possible because the whole halakhic discourse is deeply, deeply seeped by the divine. In the course of our conversation now, I've mentioned God twice. The first was when you, Lex, asked about doing the right thing. And I referred to acting out of loyalty to God. At certain times in our life, in uh, certain times of our halachic life, we have to say, "Wait a second, wait a second. Is that what God wants of me?" I think we have to take that question seriously. Or Dan, when you earlier asked about possibly rebuilding system rather than working from within, and I, and I gave the example of the, the Halachic Jews who, you know use all of this uh, plastic and foil. Uh, in, in preparation for Passover. And if I said, if that's what it means to leave Passover and, and be a servant of, of the divine, then there's something misguided. So I think that um, any responsibly lived halachic life has to realize that I'm living my life out of deep service to the divine. The brilliance of the halacha is to say that it is much more significant and much more religiously complete to respond to the divine than to talk about the divine. Words are limited. Actions are limited too, but actions say a lot more than words can, right? Our children know this very well. And anyone who's a parent knows that children check us not on what we say, but on how we're living our lives. The kind of archetypical statement, quote-unquote, of the halakha is that what it means to live a life of devotion to the divine is to realize that your actions are your speech about God. That is, instead of God talk, what we have is halachic living. What we can do, and this is what the halacha aspires to, is to act in a way that our devotion to the divine is articulated through our actions. If that is your deep understanding of what it is to live a halachic life, then you have to ask yourself the question of Spike Lee's do the right thing. You have to ask yourself, is my halachic living enabling me to justify eating animals, uh, even though really I think that it's wrong? If the answer is yes, then it means that you've somehow allowed yourself to live in a halachic echo chamber. Um, you've limited your field of vision to to the most narrow of spaces. And if I can say anything about what it means to live a life of devotion to the divine, that means that you demand of yourself to be in the widest open of spaces uh, and attentive to everything. Those who can live their halachic life and really never ask themselves what God is asking of them, then they have lived a very very Narrow sense of what it means to live halachically in my view
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us this episode. It's been a fantastic conversation, pushed me for sure, and um, looking forward to continuing to reflect back on this in future episodes.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you will be in touch with us and we want to call out all the different ways that you can do that. First you can head to our Facebook page Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at@, at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, judaismunbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. Before we go, we also wanted to say thank you to one of our sponsors. Support for this episode comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. One last reminder to stay tuned for announcements about our upcoming celebration to mark our one millionth download. And with
2: that, this has been Judaism Unbound.